Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Tuesday, June the 7th, 2022. It is currently 6.20 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live two stories above a street right here in Abilene, Texas, wherever you are, however you're listening, whenever you're listening. Thank you so much for tuning in. We know you have a billion choices. And if you would take if the fact that you've taken any time to listen to anything that we have to say, we are very grateful and we're very appreciative. And hopefully this podcast episode will prove to be beneficial. But if if you're new, you won't know what I'm getting ready to talk about. You're going to be confused at the beginning. For everyone else, it's time. I know what you're saying. It's time for what? What is it time for? It is time once again for another episode in our never-ending series, Bible Study Exercise. The Bible Study Exercise series is designed to move you from a passive listener to an active participant. We don't want you to sit there and listen to me say, hey, here's what I've studied. No, the goal is to get you to actually study a Bible, a notebook, reference tools, maybe the Blue Letter Bible app. We want you using those resource tools, digging in, doing homework assignments, sending them to me at newsif at yahoo.com. We want you to participate. We have curriculum that we want you to use. We want you to actually be engaged in Bible study. And so I do the Bible study exercise podcast episodes. Sometimes I just turn on the microphone and go, here's your assignments. Get to work. Sometimes I'm like, okay, I'm going to do a little teaching. And sometimes I do a lot of questioning. Sometimes I act like I know. Sometimes I act like I don't know because the goal is to get you involved. Some people listen and they get it. Some people are like, no, I just want I just want someone to tell me what to think and I, or I want to believe. And I'm like, no, I want you to actually pick up that Bible and engage in the study with us. So if it's your first time, welcome. If you've been here for a long time, find someone somewhere who wants to actually study the Bible, and hopefully they'll find this series to be beneficial. If they have the Church One app, the Church O-N-E, go Church O-N-E, whichever uh, whichever uh, app store you go to, the uh, Apple App Store or the Google Play Store, just do a search for Church O-N-E. Once you download the app, Search for Theology Central. That basically turns the Church One app into the Theology Central app. And look for our series called Bible Study Exercise. You'll see that we're, I don't know, 240, 250 of them. We're, we're moving towards 300. Hopefully, we'll be at 300 in the next month or so. And, uh, well, we want you to use all of them and benefit greatly from it. But it is time to turn back to another Bible study exercise, because for the next six weeks, this is week one, but for the next six weeks, we're going to probably be working on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. That's what the curriculum says we're going to be working on, so that's what we're going to be working on. Now, if you've been if you listened Sunday night, we did a Bible study exercise live broadcast. And we started really kind of working through a textbook that I used in one of the Bible colleges I went to, well, one of the seminaries, I think it was actually a seminary. And we're just basically doing kind of a very academic study of pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. So far, we've looked like his personality, the deity. We've looked at some, some basic concepts of the Holy Spirit, um, and we're going to continue that. The goal was to continue it tomorrow night. Um most likely it won't continue till Sunday night. Um, I, I guess, uh, well, I, 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 yeah, we'll see. We, we, may, we may make some uh, alterations to what we do tomorrow night, but we will see. But for today, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go to the curriculum. And we're going to go to the curriculum that was actually for last week. So this is actually, I think this is actually week two. I think I said this is the first week. For some reason, I'm thinking it's the first week, but I think it's actually the second week of the study. I apologize, but uh, we're going to go back to the curriculum for last week. I think the reason I said it's week one, because I think we're actually a week ahead, but that's okay. We're going to go back to last week and uh, we're going to grab the curriculum from that. And if you want to have access to the curriculum, just email me newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. It's absolutely free. And uh, we just send you a link and you sign up and well, you, you have access every, every week to the new curriculum, but we're going to go back and work through it just slowly, 
and just see what, what, what we can gain from it and what questions we can do. But before we do any of that, I've got to answer a question. Someone in the Discord channel posted a question, and for some reason, I have not answered it yet, so I'm going to do so right now. Here is their question, and I, the reason I'm going to use this question here is because in some cases, it relates to the, the, I, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Let me, let me say this. When it comes to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, I think it's one of the, the most controversial and divisive doctrines in the body of Christ. Now, I know a lot of people say, well, no, this is more controversial. I understand, but this one to me is so controversial because it just to me leads to so much never-ending confusion because there's this constant idea, this constant refrain that because I'm a Christian, I have the Holy Spirit, that he's doing certain things in me. And my problem is we claim that the Holy Spirit is doing things that never truly manifest and the reality of the Christian life. Everyone says, oh, the Holy Spirit's doing this, they're doing this, it's doing this, it's doing this, it's doing this. And then you're like, well, well, wait a minute. If it's doing all of that, then why is that the reality of the Christian life? Either then you have to start claiming, well, that person's not saved, that person's not saved. And one day you're going to look in the mirror and realize you're not saved either. So I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. And maybe in many cases we're claiming the Holy Spirit's doing something that he's not actually doing in us. And maybe some of the things that we're looking at are actually promises to specific historical situations. I know I even say that people are like, oh, blasphemy. But I, 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 think, I think that's true, right? But we'll, we'll talk about that more in a minute. But let's get to this question. They write, I have one question. Does God call people into certain ministries to be a pastor or go serve as a missionary in Africa, for example. All right. This is going to be somewhat probably controversial and only because I tend to kind of depart from a good portion of what people teach here. All right. So before I say anything, because some people are going to immediately disagree with me, but that's okay. You can disagree. But let me just say this. First and foremost, I want to make sure you clearly understand my theological position here. I believe that there is one God coexisting three distinct persons who are co-equal and co-eternal, and that is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Clearly, I believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, and clearly, I believe that every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We become the temple of the living God, and that he seals us unto the day of redemption. I believe that to be absolutely true, absolutely a fact, no question about any of that. Now, what the Holy Spirit does as he indwells us, that's where I have lots of differences with lots of other believers. And I think sometimes they make claims that he's doing things that doesn't actually turn out to be what we see in reality. But when it comes to this question, this is where I have an issue. A lot of people when they speak of the Holy Spirit indwelling them, they speak of the Holy Spirit indwelling them as if, like, he speaks to them. So they, and what they have to do, you have to learn to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit as he speaks to you, and he gives you, he, he tries to lead you in certain directions. And to me, it becomes this subjective craziness where I, I felt the Holy Spirit tell me this, or I felt the Holy Spirit tell me that, or I felt the Holy Spirit tell me this. And some things, it's just like, well, how do you know? Because just think about this. It's something inside of you. I know this is going to come to a shock to many people, but you know what also resides inside of you? You. You know what also resides inside of you? Your sinful nature. So anything I try to turn, oh, that feeling, or that was a voice, or I think the Holy Spirit said this, or I think the, it becomes subjective and anything I'm looking inward to try to hear or try to go based off a of feeling it's subjective, and you know that it's corrupted to some level because I'm still a sinner. The sinful nature still resides in me unless you believe in the eradication of the old man. And if you believe in the eradication of the old man, then you can be sinless, but I can't. I have not met anyone who is sinless, including myself. We're all sinners, and that's why we have to trust in an imputed righteousness from a sinless Savior. Okay, but I, I think that this just becomes crazy. This is the same kind of thing. I've talked about it. We've been talking a little bit lately about the teaching of Charles Stanley 
looking at his 30 life principles. We need to finish that. Um, even though it's not been very popular, we still need to finish it. And it's going to turn into something else because I've got ideas of what to do because those things just drive me crazy. But Charles Stanley, what some of his most famous teaching is on hearing the voice of God or listening to the will of God and something along those lines. I had to remember I graduated from the Charles Stanley Institute for Christian uh, for Christian Living. I think that was the the name of it. I've got the certificate somewhere. Um, and the, and there was I, I, again a big section of the curriculum was about, you know, listening to the will of God or listening to God and finding God's will for your life. And it's all this subjective, like I'm looking for a feeling, I'm listening to what God is telling me to do. And you'll hear Christians talk about this. You know, I I was going to go, I was driving down the road and I felt God tell me to turn right instead of left. And then I hear that there was an accident. See, God was leading me and God told me to do this. And God told me to do that. God told me who to marry and what dog to buy, what house to buy and what groceries to buy. It's, It's just constant supposedly God is speaking, 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 which then calls into question, if God is just talking to you basically 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I don't even know why you would spend any time trying to exegete scripture, doing Bible study methods, hermeneutics, Greek, Hebrew, concordances. What's the point? I mean, God is literally speaking to you 24-7. You just listen to God. And fi- in fact, everyone should just come to church and go, okay, for the next 45 minutes, everyone just sit here. No one talk. Everyone listen to God because God talks to all of us. So everyone just listen to God. And when 45 minutes are up, the timer will go off. We'll all stand. We'll sing the concluding hymn and everyone will go home. And that will be your sermon today. I just have you here so that you won't be distracted and you can hear God talk to you. I mean, I mean, literally, what's the point of listening to someone preach the Bible, when everyone in the congregation is supposedly hearing from God 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it just seems, there's so many questions with the whole thing. So when it comes to this subject of hearing God call me to do this or God calling me to do that, like I've seen this countless times. I don't know how many people I went to Bible college with or seminary with, they, God was calling, God was telling them something. Either one, they never even made it into ministry, two, they they suppose that we're called to a mission field, never go to the mission field. The call, God was calling them to marry a certain person that they end up divorcing. God was, it's, it's always God is this or that. And it, it, it put it this way, whatever God is supposedly calling people to do, clearly it's subject to change, right? Because it doesn't ever seem to work that way. And again, I think that's subjective. It's very subjective. So here is what I tend to think and how I approach it. 1 Timothy chapter 3, this is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. It doesn't say if a man feel, is, hears some inner calling, if a man desires the office of a bishop, if he desires, I'm going to look from another translation over here, 1 Timothy 3. I know this always gets me in trouble with everybody, but that's okay. First Timothy chapter three. And I know, and I know uh, a, a lot of this just goes because my absolute utter disdain for anything, anything that even, if it even drives within a thousand miles of the charismatic movement, I'm going to go 3000 miles out of my way because I, it just drives me crazy. But here we go. Um, if this this saying is trustworthy, if anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. See, it's about desiring, aspiring. It's a desire. It's a desire. It's a desire. It's a desire. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't call. I just don't look for some inner voice, some inner thing like this. I know this. If I get this absolute desire to be in ministry, and it's, and I can't, I mean, it's all I feel like I can do. I don't want to do anything else. I, I don't think I would ever be happy doing anything else. This is what I am committed to. And, and you would see some things that would, I think, go along with it. You desire reading the Bible, studying the Bible, maybe far more than any other Christian you know. You read it, you study it, you, you, you're just hungry, 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 hungry for it. And you, you see yourself wanting not just to study it, you want to you share it, you want to teach it, you want to explain it. Then I think that that's, that's how I would determine it. If you if you have this just, I have a desire to, to go to Africa and be a missionary. Well, I mean, it's not just that you want to go to Africa, okay? 
I, I've known plenty of people. Oh, I can't. I love Africa and they love everything about Africa. Okay, but that doesn't make you a missionary. You got to go to want to preach, to teach, to minister, not just because you want to live in a, uh, in a, 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 a oh, this will be, this will be an exotic location and this will be amazing and it'll be the adventure. That, that, that's no, 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 no. You would have to have a desire for it. So I think it's not just some inner voice, some trying to, you're going to know it, you're going to. I think, I think it just shows up in an overwhelming desire. I'm not saying that that's not God calling. I'm not saying that that's not the Holy Spirit doing something, but I don't look for some inner voice, some inner like, I think God's telling me. I think God, it, I don't think it's a mystical experience. I just think you just feel drawn to that. It's just like, it's just, you just, it's okay. That's what I have to do. I have to do it. I have to do it. It's, it's just what, now, now you may, and some people have desire for something completely different. They could never imagine themselves standing behind a pulpit, teaching the Bible, reading theology textbook. That just seems like completely, oh, that's not their thing, but they have a desire to do something else. Okay. The question is, is that desire, if your desire is to, you know, sell drugs uh, for the drug cartel, okay, that's probably not a godly desire. Okay, then that that that's the issue. If your desire is not for something unbiblical or ungodly, then you, if you want to say that was God leading me, you you can use that terminology. Like the desire was there, believe God placed the desire there, and that's the direction I went. I don't I don't go with this. I just felt God keep telling me. No, he he speaks to me through His Word. And in this particular case for ministry, that strong desire is not against Scripture. It's not. Having a desire for ministry is not against Scripture. In fact, if anyone desires that, he desires a good work. That, that is how I would answer that question. And I think it's very much related to the work of the Holy Spirit. All right? Okay. Um, there you go. And, and they, they say some more here, but I'll just, I'll just, I'll just, I'll hopefully that answer. I doubt it's going to answer the question, um, but I just don't go with, I try to listen, I try to hear, I try to feel. It's just, I just realize, I mean, I want, I want the Bible, I want to preach it, I want to teach it, I want to talk about it 24-7. I mean, I've, I've told you so many times, I could literally sit here all day with a microphone on, all day. Let's do a Bible study. Let's do a devotional. Let's look at a theolo- let's look at the theological implications of that news story. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about that. It's like a fire that's just in me that has just never gone away, never gone away. And there you go. Now the fire is far easier than well, always doing what you're supposed to do, and and that, that's a whole you know different story there, but. The uh, I think that is more of the way to approach it, if that makes any sense. Now, that's 18 minutes. We've used up a considerable amount of time. Let's get to it. Let's go to the curriculum. We go to Unit 1, Session 1, which was called Convicted by the Spirit. Now, I'm not going to deviate from the curriculum. We're just going to work through the curriculum and see how far we can make it before we run out of time, all right? This is just a an additional episode just to keep everyone going, hey, I, I'm still doing the Bible study exercise. Remember, your homework is a topical method Bible study on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Uh, a lot. Some people ask me, do I have to have it t- turned in by now? Just get it done by the time we're done with this, this session. That's the, the main thing is whether even if you complete it, all of the work should give you a better biblical understanding of the doctrine. And I, I taught, I did a session, I did a lesson on how to do a topical method of Bible study. But here we go. We're going to go to um, the curriculum. I'm waiting for it to open. Here we go. I'm going to hit download because it works better when it's downloaded. All right, here we go. Are you ready? We, I'm just going to start right where it starts. If I can get down to it. Here we go. Introduction. Now, I always love analyzing the artwork. All right. I always, or, or the picture that they use in the curriculum, because sometimes it's supposed to symbolize something. This one is interesting. It's uh, It says introduction. And that looks like a woman standing on a beach. She's like in the water, right? So she's like, you don't really see the sand. You see water. 
She's in a sense, she's standing in the water, but you can tell she's on the beach because, well, she's not very much, you know, the water is uh, you know, below her feet. Um, you just don't see the beach. You see the water. And then there's the sun like right behind her. And so I don't know exactly what they're trying to symbolize here. Um, I, I, yeah, I, 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 I could try to speculate. Sometimes it's obvious, but there you have it. And then underneath that, it has this. Never alone. Now that makes sense. She's standing there on a beach and you see no one. There's just water. She seems alone. You could possibly interpret the picture like she's there. Maybe she's lonely. There's no one around her. She's there by herself. And the very next words underneath the picture is never alone. Now, which is interesting because remember, this this one is supposed to be about um, the, uh, well, we'll see. Supposed to be about the conviction. Yeah, this is called convicted by the spirit. Convicted by the spirit. But Immediately, what they start off with is, you're never alone. Okay. Underneath that, it says, the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, all Christians, anything close to biblical Christianity, clearly believes that we're never alone and that the Holy Spirit is in us and dwells us, so therefore it is in our lives. The question and the debate always come, what does the Holy Spirit do in us. What is the Holy Spirit doing in our life? Yes, he's there. We know he seals us. I, we know he makes intercession, but what 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 does he do? And then everyone will start list, listening, uh, li- listing all of the things that they think he does. And this is where there becomes major disagreements within the body of Christ. And the debates have been raging forever. Let's see what they have to say. Christianity is more than a philosophy. It's not a set of rules or a collection of religious practices. At its core, Christianity is a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ by the power of his resurrection. Hear that word again, a relationship. So what they want to focus on is that Christianity is not a philosophical system. Christianity is not a system of ethics or morality. Doesn't mean that there isn't philosophy within it or it's not morality within it, but they want us to see that it's a relationship. Now that is majorly emphasized over and over and over and over. Now there is some relationship language used, right? Because God is called Father, our Father who art in heaven. We are called his Son or the children of God. Right? That's relationship language. So there is some relationship language, but I would just challenge you on this concept. Is this idea Christianity is not these other things, it is a relationship? Do you think that that has always been the way Christianity has been viewed throughout church history, or do you think it's a more modern? evangelical idea. It's a relationship. It's a relationship. You'll hear it all the time. It's not rules. It's a relationship. It's not dry, dead theology. It's a relationship. Now, it can be a situation where the relationship concept isn't necessarily unbiblical, but do you think it may have either been taken in unbiblical directions or overemphasized? Or do you think it's been underemphasized? What do you? What's your thoughts about Christianity as a relationship? You, you, you can you can tell me what you thought or what you think. As followers of Christ, we do not worship a distant God. He is right here with us. The Holy Spirit is the person of God present with us. The person of God to whom we relate directly. Now, listen. Here's the things they say the Holy Spirit does. Guides. Here, this is where we start having all kinds of disagreements. Guides, teaches, empowers, comforts, and convicts. Now, here's my pushback. If I'm going for an internal guidance system, like the Holy Spirit said to me, he's going to guide me. Well, if he's going to guide me, once again, I've got to stop and go, okay, I got I to gotta go with the feeling. What's the feeling? Well, I got to hear a voice. That to me is subjective. And again, what is inside of me? Sin is sin. 
I've heard people tell the Holy Spirit guiding them into all kinds of things that I'm like, that's not even biblical. So, and I say, well, okay, if I feel the Holy Spirit guiding me, then I got to go check the scripture to see if it, if it works with the scripture. And if it works with the scripture, then I know it's the Holy Spirit. And I'm like, why are you complicating this? Pick up the Bible and read it. Guidance to me comes from the Bible, not from the Holy Spirit trying to guide me in some kind of internal GPS. I, I, I think I, my, my, I need my GPS to be external because if it's a GPS is internal, my desire, my feelings, my emotions, look, just every day, my emotions and feelings change just like you. I believe it has to be the word of God. Then it says, he got, he teaches us. This one drives me absolutely insane. And, and, and I, again, I'm, we're not going to make it too far into the curriculum, but I at least just have to deal with this one. Christians are constantly like the Holy Spirit teaches the Holy Spirit teaches. So if I don't know, if I don't know the meaning of the verse, I pray and then he teaches, he gives me the meaning. And I'm like, do you realize what you're claiming? The minute you believe that the Holy Spirit taught you this, that he gave you the interpretation, you've just now declared to everyone that your interpretation is infallible. That it's infallible because your interpretation came from God. That's the most insane thing. Forget, you know, hey, the Protestant Reformation, we left the Pope. We, but now you just basically made yourself the Pope. You're infallible. And now you can offer an infallible interpretation of Scripture because the Holy Spirit is teaching you. That to me is massively problematic. And if the Holy Spirit's teaching all believers, 2,000 years of church history, and we don't agree yet on baptism, Lord's Supper, church structure, we don't agree on, you can't even get four Christians together to agree on an outline for crying out loud. They don't agree on anything. You say, oh, that's a little hyperbole. No, they don't agree on anything. Does the church agree on baptism? No. I mean, I can go, Lord's Supper? No. We can go, salvation, we don't even agree on salvation. You get the more reformed Calvinistic, the more Arminian, you've got Pelagian, Pelagian semi-Pelagian, Augustinian. We can go on and on and on and on. We don't agree on eschatology, ecclesiology, pneumatology. We don't agree soteriology. We don't agree on any of the ologies. We don't agree on anything. So if he's teaching us after 2000 years, we should be like, we've got the Holy Spirit teaching us. We should be like Bible scholars. We should know everything. And why is it if the Holy Spirit's teaching me and the Bible's written in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, right? And in many cases, it's very essential that I know the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic in order to, to correctly understand things. In the Bible. Why is it that the Holy Spirit doesn't give me just, I can just speak Greek, know Greek, read Greek, but it doesn't work that way, does it? No, no, it doesn't work that way. Why is it that in Bible college or seminary, you can't just show up to class for the test and go... Holy Spirit, teach me. No, Holy Spirit doesn't just immediately give me the answers. I had to study and read and study and read, whatever the case may be. I can give you a million examples. Once again, Christianity sells the work of the Holy Spirit that in a way that never actually meets the reality of what we experience or see. And nobody ever wants to raise their hand and go, mm, are we sure? <gasps> How dare you? To me, Christianity sometimes comes off like an info commercial. Hey, hey, call now. And this is, it's going to do this and this and this and this. And you're kind of like, I, I, I have the product and it doesn't do those things. Shh, get off the set, get off the set. This is an info commercial. We don't want to confuse anyone. But if he teaches us. And then here's the next one. He empowers us. Oh, I hear this all the time. He empowers me. He em How much power? How much power? Do you get the power of Samson? Well, no, that's ridiculous. Okay, so we don't get that power. Okay, does he give me the power to be perfect, holy, without sin? Well, no, he doesn't do that. Okay, well, then you're telling me he no, the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit, which ha would then have the attribute of being omnipotent, all-powerful, cannot he gives me power but he 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 put places a, a a governor on the on the power he makes sure that he places a, a governor on the throttle so that i don't get the full power i only get 50 percent power 60 percent power because if he gave me omnipotent power well the least i should be able to do is be 
perfectly holy. I should be able to be without sin. And I've yet to meet a Christian who can pull that off. But we claim we have power. Christians claim we have power. And then you get the report from the SBC. And you're like, that that was the power of God at work? Or we have power. And then someone's like, I know you. I know what you've done. I know all the mistakes you've made. And you're like, you're right. No excuse for it. But clearly, and you say, well, but you ha- the power is available, but you have to use the power. Well, and then if you don't want to use the power, you don't have to use it. And then you would think, well, wouldn't God's power in me overcome what I want and what I will? Because, well, his will is for me to be holy, right? It, yeah, it just becomes majorly problematic. And then he comforts us, and then he convicts us of our sins. Through the, through the six lessons of this study, we will see just how the Holy Spirit works in us and among us. Let's jump into this study together to see that we are never alone. It's interesting. They really want to, they really want that you're never alone. You're ne- hey, if you're on a beach by yourself and you feel depressed and lonely, you're never alone. Is that the emphasis? What's the actual thesis here? Well, it, it seems that that's the thesis more than anything else. But then we go down to another picture. This one's interesting. Session one, convicted by the spirit. And then you see the top of someone's head and they have sunglasses pulled up on the top of their head. I don't know exactly. I don't know exactly what that's supposed to represent. We'll see if we can figure that out. Ah, okay, we get it. Right underneath that, they have a question. When have you thought you lost something only to discover it was never lost to begin with? So sometimes some people will have their glasses and kind of put it up on the top of their head or their sunglasses. Like, I can't find my glasses. I can't find my sunglasses. And you'll like, it's right there on the top of your head. So this is the icebreaking question. If we were doing like a small group thing, you know, and I just hate that they all think that you have to do that, but okay. When have you thought you had lost something only to discover it had never was never lost to begin with, all right? And then you would go around the circle and everybody would tell their little story. Okay, gotcha, all right? Now, the point, here's their, like the main point for this study. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin and points to the truth of salvation. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin and points to the truth of salvation. Now, I'm going to ask you a a, a question. We would all agree, or, or, okay, I can't say um, more of the, uh, I can't speak dogmatically for the Pelagian, semi-Pelagian, Arminian. In the Reformed world, we would believe that, yes, the whole, that in the effectual call of God to bring someone to salvation, that he uses the Word of God and the Spirit of God to bring us to faith in Christ. Well, he has to give us faith as well. He, he has to give us, to, to bring us to salvation, he's got to give us he, uh, uh, faith, he's going to bring us to conviction, he's, gonna, he's going to, to effectually call us and bring us to him. So we can understand the the use of the Holy Spirit and convicting us and leading up us to our conversion, bringing us to faith in Christ, bringing us to salvation, bringing us to a saving understanding of who Jesus Christ is, that the Holy Spirit has to be involved to truly convict us because just a human conviction is not sufficient. We need a spiritual conviction to ultimately move us to a to salvation. So I think we can all agree that in that, in the work of salvation, in the work of conversion, in the work of regeneration, and all of that, the, 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 the effectual call of God will obviously use the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the word to bring us to salvation. I think we would agree on that. I think others would believe, I think others would also believe that the Holy Spirit is convicting the others to to become saved. And then, of course, they have a free will, so they can either choose or, or, or not choose. We could get into that whole discussion. But I think everyone agrees that the Holy Spirit is at work in some way, shape, or form, bringing someone to salvation. In other words, before someone's saved, the Holy Spirit is doing a work in some way, shape, or form of conviction. I think everyone would agree with that. I don't think there's any major theological disputes there, all right? 
I think we would all agree that the Holy Spirit is doing a work of convicting to bring people to faith. Now, once we are saved, once we are saved, how does the Holy Spirit work in us in the convicting process? How does he work? Now, people say, well, he continues to convict. Now, that I think I think there would probably be most universal agreement on that, but we would again I, sometimes in Christianity we sell something that I don't know if we truly always see the reality of. Do you think he equally convicts of sin? Do you think there, that it always works the same way, or if there's some ebb and flow to it? Because I've known plenty of Christians who, including myself, who. It can, it can be just small sins, little sins, like you didn't demonstrate love to your wife as Christ loves the church, or you were a glutton, or you were slothful, or you were a little greedy, or you were selfish, or you said an unkind word, or you engaged in gossip and slander, just things that don't reach that scandalous idea, all of those hundreds of sins that we commit all the time that nobody seems to care about, right? There's a lot of people who are those things are present all the time and they don't seem to experience much conviction about it. Is there a definitive, can we be dogmatic and definitive in how the Holy Spirit convicts us after salvation? Is there a way to say, because does the Holy Spirit just automatically convict you or is the conviction connected with the scripture you are reading? Right? How does that work? Let's see how they handle it. All right. All right. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin and points to the truth of salvation. Now they give us the text of scripture. I'm, I'm not going to go there right now. We'll get back to it. I'm going to skip the passage. I'll just, I'll go ahead and give you the reference. You can write it down. John chapter 15 verses 26 through 27 and John chapter 16, 7 through 15. John chapter 15, verse 26 through 27, and John chapter 16, verses 7 through 15. And then they say this, the Bible meets life, and they're going to go to J.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, and don't let me get started on my, how much I despise The Lord of the Rings, but that's a whole different story. All right, so readers of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings knows well the scene where Gandalf is dragged over the edge of a broken bridge and Gandalf held on long enough to charge his friends to fly away. Then he slipped away, presumably never to be seen again. Frodo and his friends escaped with their lives, but Frodo was heartbroken at the loss. Gandalf had been his mentor, guide, and encourager. Frodo was lost without him. I don't know why we're going to Lord of Rings. And if I'm saying Gandalf wrong or Frodo wrong, Lord of the Ring people don't get all crazy on me because I just, I, yeah, I'm not a fan of either, but that's okay. So they wanted to use that to give us this idea of he felt lost without, Frodo felt lost without Gandalf. He, 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 he felt completely lost. We understand loss. Whether it's the loss of a parent to death or the loss of a close friend because of a relocation. We know the pain of losing someone meaningful to us. The gospel describes such loss for the disciples. Jesus had been their guide, their hope, and their Lord. When he explained he was going to leave them, we sense their confusion and distress. After finding the one they believed to be the Messiah, how could the disciples continue without him? But Jesus told them that he would not leave them alone. He would send his Holy Spirit to be with them. Jesus also promised that he will never leave us alone. So that's the setup, all right? The disciples were in a situation where they've had Jesus physically there, and he lets them know, I'm going to leave. And they're like, wait a minute, what are we going to do? You're going to be gone. And Jesus like, you will never be alone I'm going to give you something to ensure that you are never alone. You're not going to be abandoned. And then the argument is Jesus has made that same promise to all of us. Then they tell us to go to John chapter 15. 
John chapter 15. Here we go. John chapter 15, verse 26. But when this comforter is come, whom, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. So the Holy Spirit here is referred to as the comforter and the spirit of truth, and it's, and that he proceeds from the Father, but the idea is the Spirit is going to testify of me. The Spirit is going to testify or point to Jesus. Another translation, that's John 15, 26. I'm going to look at it in another translation. We may have to do a little work in the Greek here, but we'll, I'm going to try to stick with the curriculum is what I'm going to try to do here. And then we may come back to this. Right When the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So he's going to testify about me. He's, he's going to point you to Christ. Now, please note, one translation says comforter, one says counselor. We, we may have to look at the Greek there to see what they do. We'll see what the um, curriculum has to do here. All right. Um, they say, uh, testify, okay, yeah, they're, they're, they're going to testify me. All right. They say the key word here is comforter, comforter. And I'm going to do this. I'm going to check what they say the Greek word is here. I'm going to check what they say the Greek word is here because, you know, we always, we never trust anything. We never trust anything at all. All right, let's go to this. Let me find the Blue Letter Bible app. Let's go to the Gospel of John chapter 15. Let's go down to verse 26. Let's open up the interlinear. And they want to say the key word here is comforter. The key word is comforter, right? I didn't want that. Okay, let me go back. I want the interlinear. There we go. Uh, comforter. Here we go. This is the Greek word. You probably know this Greek word. It's this Greek word. Strong's G, 3875. Parakletos. 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 You've heard that Greek word, possibly? Parakletos. That's the Greek word for comforter. It is used five times. Four times it's translated comforter. One time advocate. Parakletos. Parakletos. Now let's go back to what the uh, curriculum has to say here. It says, the translation of the Greek word parakletos, meaning one who has been called alongside or sent to assist another person. So this is the idea that the parakletos, hey, I'm leaving you, but this, the parakletos is going to be sent in to, to be, to come alongside you, to assist you. But let, we've got to ask this question. When Jesus is promising the disciples that the parakletos is going to come alongside them to assist them, the way that the parakletos, that the Holy Spirit, that the Comforter assisted, assisted those disciples, is it the same way in which he assists us? Now, many will say, yes, the parakletos is the same. It's the, the Holy Spirit is the same, and his assistance is exactly the same. But I would say slow down, because the parakletos came to assist those disciples, and many of them were moved by the Holy Spirit to write, well, inspired scripture, which he's not doing that for you or for me. We are not writing inspired scripture. We're not producing the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. The parakletos is not doing that for us. So I would say he's not assisting us in the same way, and that's one clear example. And so when I believe, I believe that when the, the scriptures say he's going to lead you unto all truth, he's referring specifically to the disciples that he led them into all truth. He brought to, to their remembrance what he had said. The parakletos was there guiding them, directing them in the production of the word of God. That is not the same way he's assisting me today. I think that's important to know. All right, they go on to say this. Jesus spoke these words 
during his final Passover meal with his disciples in an upstairs room in Jerusalem. Jesus knew that in a few hours he would be arrested, tried, beaten, and crucified. He also knew that his disciples would be scattered, confused, and afraid. So as they finished the meal, a meal that Jesus instilled with a new significance and meaning, he began what some have called his farewell address. Of the many things Jesus told them that night, perhaps the most moving moment was when he told them he was leaving them. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, whether I go, you cannot come. So now I say to you, John 13, 33. Hey, guys, I'm leaving you. It's got to be a moving, scary moment, right? It's got to be a little concerning to them. We can imagine the confusion of the disciples. One by one, they ask questions, trying to understand what Jesus was telling them. John recorded questions from several disciples, Peter, Thomas, Philip, and other, and, and the other Judas. And the t- tender way Jesus answered them, despite their fear and uncertainty, he surely saw in the disciples' eyes. Jesus told them that he would not leave them alone. And thus Jesus began to teach the disciples about the Holy Spirit and his work. He used two phrases to describe the Holy Spirit. The first, comforter, all right? Comforter, or as we've already said, this Greek word, Strong's G, 3875, parakletos, 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 all right, parakletos, that's meaning, again, meaning called or sent to assist another, an advocate, or the one who pleads the case of another. The role of the Holy Spirit was to be present with those who belonged to Jesus. The Spirit would walk with them, comfort them, and provide the help they needed. Now, I'm going to argue there's an assistance there direct specifically for those disciples. Look, I, I think we have to understand that. I know parakletos, everybody wants to say, no, it's the same for me, but I've already, he, we're, you're not writing inspired scripture. That's different. He's not bringing to to memory everything Jesus said, because if he did, then you could just quote to me the entire gospels and you can't, you forget, you try to memorize and can't remember. All right. So there's some, there's an assistance there that's somewhat different. What we have to determine is maybe what is applicable to us and what isn't. I know that's considered blasphemy in the minds of some people, but I just, everybody, that's why you got charismatics running around thinking they can raise the dead. No, we don't, we don't, certain things, clearly there was a ministry of the parakletos or the Holy Spirit that I think is his assistance there was somewhat different in certain ways, right? So the comforter or the Holy Spirit's referred to as the comforter or the spirit of truth. A key role of the Holy Spirit is to give testimony to the truth of Jesus. In John 5, 31 through 39, Jesus identified six witnesses who testified about him. One, himself. Two, John the Baptist. Three, the miracles Jesus performed. Four, God the Father. Five, Scripture. And six, another. Jesus identified the Holy Spirit as that other. The Spirit would come to testify to the truth of Jesus to the disciples and through them to the world. I think it's very important that the Spirit of truth is to testify of Jesus. It's to point to Jesus. It's to point us to Jesus. Sometimes it feels like people think the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to make it about us, right? The Holy Spirit does this and this and this and this for me, for me, for me, for me. And it sometimes you feel like, is the ministry of the Holy Spirit about pointing us to Jesus or is it about us? about us, my, the power I have, what I can do, All right? Um, the, the curriculum goes on to say, Jesus said the Holy Spirit would be the one whom I will send unto you from the Father, and the Spirit proceeded from the Father. This passage is a picture of the mystery of the Trinity. God is one God who eternally exists as three persons. Does the Holy Spirit come from the Father or from Jesus? The right answer is yes, both are accurate. As third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit comes from, the, from God, the Father and Son. Of course, the Holy Spirit is also God. 
In the same farewell address, Jesus said he would ask the Father to send another comforter, which referred to another of the same kind. In other words, Jesus would send someone just like himself, because third person of the Trinity, one God, three distinct persons, co-equal, co-eternal. Just as Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit to his disciples, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to us. The Holy Spirit is God's presence with us. We may feel alone at times. I think it's more than just God's presence. Well, okay. I, I, I'm not, I, I, there's some of this we could take apart a little bit, but that's okay. We'll just continue. We may feel alone at times, but Jesus has promised never to leave us or abandon us. He is always present with us in the person of the comforter. Question two, how would you describe the job of a counselor? All right, so they, they, they don't do a lot here in how he supposedly comforts or how is the spirit of truth. But I, again, I'm going to argue first and foremost that he comes, the Holy Spirit comes to assist, comes alongside. And I think that there is an assistance for the apostolic era that may not be the same assistance after the apostolic era ended. Because obviously there was something the Spirit was doing at that time. It's not doing now. He was moving men to write inspired scripture. So clearly there's a difference. Clearly they were doing miracles at that time that I'm sorry you can claim all day are happening, but every time someone claims it, it's proven to be fraudulent. No one was questioning the, uh, the veracity and the truthfulness of those miracles during the apostolic era with the apostles. They, 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 they admitted they did the miracles. They just, well, either wanted to silence them, kill them, or try to claim Satan was at work, but they didn't deny the actual accuracy or truthfulness of the miracles. Now, they go to John chapter 16, 7 through 11, and I quote, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Oh, there's a lot going on in John 16, 7 through 11. A lot going on. Now, I think we still could have done a little bit more work in the end of John 15. That's okay. Remember, I'm just, all I'm doing today is following the curriculum to the letter. I'm trying not to deviate too much, but I am throwing out things to get you to think. That's what we do in the Bible study exercise. Remember, I just, sometimes I throw things out because I'm trying to get you involved. Now, they say the key word in this section is the word reprove. The word reprove. So let's look it up. Let's see, uh, John chapter 16. Um, let's go to verse 8. John 16, verse 8. I'm going to go to the Blue Letter Bible app. John 5, or John, I need to go to John, John 16, here we go, verse 8, I'm going to pull up the antilinear, we're going to look at the word reprove, it's this Greek word. Strong's G, 1651, Eleg Ho, Eleg Ho, Eleg Ho, Eleg Ho. If you look at it, you probably wouldn't think it's, it's pronounced that way, but Aleg Ho. That's how I'm going to say Aleg Ho. That's how I'm going to, to uh, say it with my Texas accent. All right, there you go. It is used 17 times, and Aleg Ho means reprove, rebuke, convince, tell one's fault, convict. Uh, the Strong's definition of Aleg Ho is to confute to admonish, to convict, to convince, tell a fault, rebuke, and repuve, reprove, I should say. Uh, the outline of biblical usage, to convict, refute, confute, generally with a suggestion of shame of the person convicted, by conviction to bring the light, to expose, to find fault with, to correct, by word, to reprehend severely, chide, admonish, reprove, to call to account, by deed, to chasten, to punish. All right? Now, they say this about this concept. The work of the Holy Spirit of exposing a person's sin and calling that individual to repentance. Now, I want you to think of this in two parts. The role of the Holy Spirit in convicting prior to salvation, which brings someone to salvation, and after salvation. 
All right. After seven. Now, a lot of people will talk about the conviction of the Holy Spirit. A lot of people will talk about it. But again, I've seen many cases where there, like, there's, there's thousands of sins that people are, are involved with at any given time. Attitudes, lust, desires, gossip, slander, thoughts. Who knows? There's always a million things. I'm not even talking about big sins. I'm not talking about scandalous sins. I'm not talking like about horrible things that we read in the, the report from the Southern Baptist Convention, which is just absolutely disturbing. I'm talking just your normal everyday, I hate to say it, I'm just going to use it, venial sins, because that, even evangelicals divide sins into the venial and, and mortal uh, camp. Hey, you committed a venial, uh, don't worry about it. Mortal, you're done. We, we're going to crucify you at you know sundown. All right. So even though we claim we don't have those divisions, we do. All right. But what is the role of the Holy Spirit in convicting prior to and then after you're saved? Because there's all of those sins. Do you feel conviction about them all the time? Do you? I mean, come on, honestly. Do you feel convicted? Now, there's times I think we do. So how does it work? Is it a constant, just like convict, 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 convict? At that point, I think you would just literally go insane. I think you would just like, you'd start drinking heavily and you would be like, I I've constantly feel like a piece of garbage. So how does it, how does it work? I, 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 this would be interesting to know because in some ways it feels subjective. You're looking for like some kind of feeling, feeling. How does it work? This is what they have to say. In John 16, Jesus explained to his disciples how hard their lives would be. Then he told them his departure would actually benefit them. The disciples had chosen to be with Jesus. They had left fishing boats, tax booths, families, and homes to allow to follow Jesus. How on earth could his absence be to their advantage, especially if they would face the hardships he described? The benefit would come in the presence of the Holy Spirit, since the Spirit would be with them in a way that Jesus had not been. During his earthly ministry, Jesus worked to carry out his mission in one specific place at a time. However, the Spirit is different. He moves and works all over the world without concern of time or place to accomplish God's work. Jesus describes the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in verses 8 through 11. Reprove is a legal term indicating a person is guilty of wrongdoing. Uh, some, someone described it this way. The Spirit does not near, merely accuse men of sin. He brings them to an inescapable sense of guilt so that they realize their shame and helplessness before God. Now, this gets into, a, I think we go into a general call, an effectual call, and that gets into very theological terms. Um, I believe, obviously, in a general and effectual call. I believe the general call goes out to everyone. The effectual call is what brings someone to saving knowledge. I think that there is a, I'm going to call this a general conviction and an effectual conviction. I think there's a general conviction within the world. And I think this comes from a number of sources, that God's law is written on our hearts. That's why men have a sense of morality. It's, it's right there. It's inside of it. There's a sense of that's wrong, that's right. Even people who reject God, reject Christianity, they still were like, that's wrong behavior, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's evil, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's not right, that's not right, that's not fair, that's not just. I mean, I think in one case is when you, when, when you see the a current generation so upset about social justice and there's no justice and this is wrong, in some cases we should be like, well, awesome. They, that's demonstrating they have a, a very internal sense of wrong and right. And we can use that to go, where is that sense of wrong and right and justice coming from? I believe it's because God's law has been written on your heart. Now we manipulate it, we change it, we we we're, we're, our sinful nature does all kinds of horrible things with it. We're, 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 tries to rewrite it, presses it down, all the things it tries to do, but it's there. And I think inside every person, there's a deep sense of guilt. And I think you you hear this a lot of times from from counselors, psychologists that uh, those who are in the psychiatric world, you think the, that there is a, that one of the main reasons people go seek counseling and some kind of help or mental health issues is that never ending unlying, underlying sense of guilt. 
Now, they will argue that that sense of guilt is placed on them by their parents who had unreasonable expectations, by society, by everyone else. And in many cases, they just try to teach you to overcome that guilt and ignore that guilt and replace that guilt with just a self-acceptance that will make you feel great. The only problem is, in many cases, that's them denying or trying to reject the guilt that's really inside of you because it was placed there by your creator, that God placed his law in your heart to give you that sense of wrong and right. So I believe there's like a general conviction that is present, and that explains so many mental health issues and so many issues in the lives of people. There is a guilt just inside of you eating at you eating at you and you feel guilt and you feel guilt and you feel unworthy and you feel guilty because you're, you are unworthy. You're nowhere close to what your creator has calls you to be. So you're overwhelmed with it. I think that that is a general, that's a part of the general call. That's a part of the, 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 general revelation of God, right? I think it's, and I think there's a general conviction where the Holy Spirit, in a sense, that conviction is, goes to everyone, whether they, they don't understand that it's from God, they don't understand the, the divine origins of it, but it is present. Then there's the effectual conviction where that general conviction now is used by the Holy Spirit, by God, through, through the preaching of his word, that then ultimately breaks us, realizes that we are guilty before God. It's not just we're guilty against human standards. It's not that we're just guilty against, oh, I sinned against that person and I hurt that person. You realize you've sinned against your creator and that you deserve judgment. And then that brings you to, well, ultimately the foot of the cross. And you're like, I am unworthy. I, I cannot save myself. I'll never be righteous enough. And then by faith, we receive the imputed righteousness of Christ. I believe there's a general conviction and there's an effectual conviction. I, I believe that's the only way to understand it. All right. And so when this says that, uh, when they have this quote, the spirit does not merely accuse men of sin. He brings them to an inescapable sense of guilt so that they realize their shame, helplessness before God. He doesn't do that for everyone. That's why I think you have to have a general conviction and an effectual conviction. You have, just like you have a general call, an effectual call. He does not do that to everyone. If he did, everyone would see their helplessness before God and be saved. But not everyone sees that inescapable sense of guilt so they realize that they're shame and that they are helpless before God. No, many most will never experience that. Those of us who felt that overwhelming sense of guilt you remember it strongly. I know at least I remember it. I'm sitting there in a pew, First Baptist Church, Tuscola, Texas, their fall revival. I didn't even want to be there. The whole way I end up there is crazy. I, to this day, don't remember a word that was preached. I don't remember. I just remember this. All of a sudden, I'm like, I am a sinner and I deserve judgment and hell. And I began to weep. And I laid down in the pew just weeping like uncontrollably. I sounded like, like someone had died. I mean, it was, I was just like wailing, like, oh, like uncontrollable, just screaming out. And I'm not the, like, no, 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 no. I, I don't want to draw all that attention to myself. And they literally had to stop the church service. And then the, the pastor gave an altar call, which of course, that's not really a part of my theology, but okay, they gave it all. I came forward and like, I'm a sinner and I, I, you know, I need salvation. And, um, but I was overwhelmed. I, I was brought to that place of an inescapable sense of guilt and realized that shame and helplessness before God. Now, I believe that is the work of the Holy Spirit. I believe that the Holy Spirit and through the pro- proclamation of God's word. Now, clearly, I don't remember what was said, but something was preached. Something was said through the work of the Holy Spirit. I was brought to that point. That's not that there's a general sense where just, I knew I was guilty, but this was the effectual guilt. This was the effectual calling. I'm going to put this together that the work of the Holy Spirit here, there's a general and there's an effectual because that does not happen for everyone. All right. Now we're going to have to stop there. We're going to look at how the Holy Spirit does this convicting work in three ways. So here's what I want you to do. I, I want you to think about how the Holy Spirit convicts prior to salvation, how he convicts the world, right? Or just how how the Holy Spirit convicts before salvation. Then I want you to think about how the Holy Spirit convicts in salvation. How does that work? How does it work? What does it look like? What does it feel like? How come it, you know, you've, you've, there's been times in your Christian life where you, you weren't, you didn't feel conviction. And I, you know what? I've, I've literally met Christians say this. 
I haven't been convicted of that yet. What? The Holy Spirit has not convicted me of that yet. Okay, well, first, why wasn't the Holy Spirit convicting you of that? And second, even if the Holy Spirit's not convicting of you of it, if the Bible condemns it, it's wrong, whether you feel it or not. All right, we got to stop there. An hour and four. Man, I wanted to finish all of this. But I want you to think of that. So I want you to think of the Spirit's conviction prior to salvation. I'm got Three parts. Prior to salvation, in salvation, and after salvation. And I want you to think about that concept of an effectual or a general conviction and an effectual conviction. And if you're not familiar with the term general call and effectual call, we've done some study on that in our study in Romans. We'll definitely work on it. All right, but I'm going to stop there for now. Oh, man. Before the night is over, I'm going to try to come back. I'm going to try. I don't know. if It's already almost 730. I don't know. We'll see. If not, Tomorrow, we'll definitely get to it. But you can email me, newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Just let the discussion begin, and we'll see where it ends. All right, everyone have a great evening. God bless.